Joe presents Baz and Andrew's House of Rugby, together with Guinness. Hello, and you're very welcome to Baz and Andrew's House of Rugby, here on Joe, together with Guinness. We've got a whopper show for you today. Trimby and I will be chatting uh, all about the rugby news, general crack and penguin whispers. We're going to be joined by Ospreys and Wales legend, and in my opinion, one of the most talented players to have ever played our game, Mr. James Hook, who has uh, just announced his retirement coming at the end of the month. Unfortunately, he won't get to play out the season uh, for obvious reasons, but we'll talk to him about his and his incredible career, shine a light on that. And also, he is now stepping into the book writing world with a series of children's books about rugby to be released later in the year. So we'll chat to him about that. With that in mind, Trimby, we are going to move away from our classic album match and uh, movie this week and go into... The world of sports literature. We have self-anointed uh, Jeff Neville, aka the loose head on Twitter, as our sports literature authority. Consultant. Consultant. Yeah, way better. Yeah. Um, well done. It's the first time I've ever remembered that word. Uh, <laughs> so he's going to take us through his three top sports books of all time, namely Sam Warburton. Open sides, David Epstein's The Sports Gene, and Andre Agassi's Open. <laughs> Look at us, country or smart. Is Andre Agassi from Limerick? He is, yeah. Yeah. You know, his father used to own a chipper there on the high road. <laughs> Agassi's chipper, the golden grill. Um, yeah, we're going to push smart. Look at us. Yeah, yeah. I think we're getting a little bit clever for our own good. <clears throat> for one week only let's get clever and then let's get back I, to being dumb next week yeah i i was i was thought i was so clever yesterday i was walking through uh ul with andre agassi's book and i was walking and reading it oh, that, went, that's dangerous <laughs> it was i nearly walked into a few of those uh waist high um bollards a few times but um, I felt like a scholar. I felt like someone from like Lord of the Rings, like Littlefinger, one of those lads walking through an old garden with a with a, a book. Just... With the book upside down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, great book. Yeah. So, but anyway, before we get into that, uh, another little bit of housekeeping. I feel like this is the, the, the I'm getting into the groove of this. This is the safety briefing before flight or something. Um, <laughs> uh, just make sure and have a look at our new YouTube home. Uh, we've got a new um, profile there, House of Rug- our Baz and Andrews House of Rugby channel on, on YouTube. There's going to be exclusive videos and the best bits of our episodes. 600 people, that figure was 500 last week, so 100 people. Mm. Fell for it. Yeah. <laughs> 600 subscribers already, so there's plenty of room for more. Please subscribe <clears throat> and check it out. Yeah. I'm on board. Um, right, Trimby, I have a public service announcement to make. Do you remember a few weeks ago, I was talking about a lot of people who I was calling out for spoofing and putting up um, their five kilometer scores on Instagram. And I was mm. like, there's no way all these people are running sub 22, 21 uh, minute kilometer, five kilometer runs. And I um, named and shamed my barber and friend Garrett for running a 22 kilometer or 22 minute kilometer, five kilometer. Uh, he then got on to me and claimed me basically was I'll race you. So I was like, oh, shit. Um, so, it was the only it was the only response. I know. <laughs> I know. But I didn't think he could because I play soccer with him all the time. And he's he's 
he can run like he can put one foot in front of the other. But I said, there's no way because I can only run 5K in 27 minutes. I was like, there's no way this guy can run five minutes faster than me, like an entire kilometer away from me. After 5K. <laughs> so I was like, why is he is he large? No, he's not. He's I, it's just because I played football with him. He's he's just kind of gets around. But I would have assumed I was maybe fitter than him because yeah, I'm a former professional athlete, etc. Yeah. Um. So he claimed me anyway, and we went down on Friday. Um. And there was there was alarm bells early doors where he was like, I was I was doing the old ah look I, I haven't stretched at all now and uh, I oh jeez I'm. I didn't, the babies had me up all night and, uh, <laughs> you know, I was trying to give myself as much wriggle room as possible. And, uh, my calf has been at me. And then he was like, yeah, yeah, look, I am, um, I've got a problem with my nose. I can't really, um, breed properly through my nose. So I won't be able to talk to you because I have to do all my breathing through my mouth. So I won't talk. And I was there, Jesus, he's not going to talk to me the whole way around. Um, and then he pulls his headphones out and puts his headphones in. And he was like, look, we'll go for it. First two kilometers are going to be fast. So just, We'll go for it. I was like, grand. <laughs> we ran a, a four on the nose, four minutes, first kilometer. And then the second one was like four minutes, 20. And about 200 meters into the third one, I had to stop and get sick. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you really showed him. It was, <laughs> oh, fuck. It was so bad, man. I was like on the side of the road there by Chalks in the main Dublin road as you come into Limerick and there was loads of traffic passing me as well. People beeping their cars at me because uh, it went on. It was one of those uh, Team America pukes where it went on for like <laughs> 40, 45 seconds. <laughs> and you know why? This is a hot take. Well, it was not a hot take. This is why. Um, because I was running around for the first two kilometers. I, I couldn't spit because I was, I, was, I was afraid that if I spat, people would be like, uh, coronavirus no way yeah. so i was like holding in my spit and then my 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 throat got just covered in in like mucus and just normal stuff that you get out so i was getting all heartburny um so is that are you allowed to spit if you're running yes the... yeah definitely like has the world changed that much by the way if if so 5k's are very trendy at the minute if two and a half k's become fashionable your quid's in because it sounds like you're flying. Two, 2.2K. 2.2K. <laughs> What's your 2.2K time? <laughs> it was ridiculous. That's how quick it was. Um, yeah. But yeah. So look, um, I, I must give, take my hat off to that fucking maniac. He ran it in 22 minutes. I came in at 27 minutes, <laughs> literally five minutes behind him. So well done, Garrett. You are the king yeah. of the world. Jeez, you really proved your own. Yeah. <clears throat> but I did go for a few pints afterwards. The Kurigauer in Limerick, my favorite pub, also my brother's pub, so I kind of have to say that, uh, opened its doors on Friday at four o'clock for takeaway pints and food, which was unbelievable. Lovely. Um, we, uh, that was a wee, uh, wee view over the, over the Shannon, is it? Yeah. It is the best spot in Limerick. It looks right across King John's Castle and right on the Shannon and... He was like, yeah, you're not allowed, you have to drink it, your pint or eat your food 100 meters away from the pub. Um, so I was like a, I was like a quantity surveyor up the road, like just trying to make sure exactly how far away I was. So I could just get my order in for the next two. Um, or wish I had one of those mar- pitch marking things that you could roll, roll up to 
Yeah, like a meter. Yeah, like a ruler. Yeah, yeah. Where <laughs> it clicks yeah. every meter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is that that's the legislation? So, then you have to, if it's considered takeaway, you have to be. Would you say a hundred meters? Hundred meters away from the premises before you can drink, so they don't can because it's such a nice area. They can't have a lot of people just sitting outside. Yeah. Um, getting demented. <laughs> yeah. But imagine it'd be like a zombie movie where people are all just outside the, the public just trying to get in a little bit of normality uh, yeah, we're, we're easily pleased at this stage aren't we yeah well there's changes today is the second day of the where we're allowed to have people in our house and crack like that um so what's it like up there is there any anything, anything still no, up there still not allowed people in your house um but you're allowed um small gatherings of six outside so we had um we had granny and granda down um and uh dad brought his uh his power host <laughs> so <laughs> there yeah. you go yeah and he what, he seems he like a, uh he's just well he, he started hosing the like the, the pavement out the back and all and then um he he, he appeared like a man who uh, hasn't had to worry about kids for a long time <laughs> the Molly and Jack were annoying him, right? and then um, uh, I just heard him say, um, "See that stone there, Jack? Go and see if there's you can find some more stones." <laughs> he sent them on a. <laughs> Jack fell for it, to be fair. And then five minutes later, then um, <laughs> Molly switched. Molly switched his power hose off, and he turned trying to hose her. With whatever was left. <laughs> so oh, that's great. she came in, she came in in tears. <clears throat> she was have, you missed, Gra- have you missed Grandad? Have you <laughs> power hose? There's a difference between like playfully ter- turning a hose on a child <laughs> to power hosing her in the face. I know it's like the snowball a fight in a, a snowball fight, the snowball fight in Dumb and Dumber. It's like <laughs> if it's a kid snowball fight, that's fine, but it's like taking her head off <laughs> yeah uh, that's great power rose take your skin off like um, i <laughs> yeah. wonder how often your dad sent you looking for rocks when you were younger i'd say a lot I'd, I'd imagine you fell for that a lot i i did yeah the other thing was that i had a moment of realization what my dad was going through um it's my it's jack's birthday coming up and he got a, a box of connects lego and um he sat down he wanted to do this with me and uh, there was like a race car we were making it's quite technical jack's actually quite quite good with it but it just brought me back as soon as jack invited me in to do that i was in charge and jack wasn't touching <laughs> wasn't touching oh. anything like, <laughs> <laughs> you weirdo <laughs> yeah no. and then i realized this is exactly what happened uh, whenever i was a kid dad brought me down to the model shop and i got this wee um uh, airplane model like with glue and bits of tape and all and uh and i just remember it got to the end of it and i went dad i haven't i haven't touched that <laughs> touched <laughs> once <laughs> so like history this is not itself. a toy andrew this is not a toy yeah. it's a model airplane yeah so it's just a case of um like uh, jack just sitting over my shoulder watching me do it which he seemed to enjoy it's fine yeah sure he did yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Just get him more rock. Get him more rocks to play with. Go, yeah, go and find some stones, Jack. Cheers. Um, all right, some rugby news. <clears throat> the top Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere unions are set to meet up on June fifteenth for more talks about global rugby season twenty twenty one and beyond. 
So the Six Nations could move to March and April and the Lions tour could be September. Um, or a few cheap Bill Sweeney has said, everything is on the table. Everything. Everything is um, on the table sounds like a very dramatic headline. And then they say, but we're contemplating Six Nations moving back by a, a month. <laughs> a few weeks. Yeah. You know, Two, three, three weeks. Yeah. yeah. But I, th- I, I feel like it, it will be on the table because I feel like that conversation has really taken a, a jump now, a step up. Everyone is talking about it. And again, there, we've said this before, n- there is no negative side to it in my eyes. What are the negative connotations of, of moving the season? So basically... Um, one potential negative, apparently, is... <clears throat> so the positive is, obviously, better weather. For us, mm-hmm. we're talking about the summer. For, for, from mm-hmm. our perspective, talking about playing in the summer, getting better weather, better rugby. And not having to compete with the Premier League apparently is a, is a big thing. But yes. every year you'll have to compete with um, football, World Cups, World Championships, Olympics, all that. There's going to be... PAA would be a big one, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the GA is well spread out as well. They're, they don't have uh, as many games. It's not like every week is a huge game. It's kind of, it's more condensed. So I know what you mean, but I don't know. I'd love to see just a little bit of change anyway to take the first step yeah, um, and see how we get on. But sure, look, we'll see what happens. Um, huge, uh, our Pat did a great uh, article actually on the, all the transfers that have happened in the mm. last few weeks in international, last few months anyway, for next season in international rugby. Uh, there's a, uh, an article on Sports Joe that you can check out to find them. Some of my favorites obviously being Dale Andy and Snyman from Munster, Connacht have signed. Uh, Connor Oliver, Sammy Arnold, and Oshin Dowling, as we said last week. Um, <clears throat> Ulster, Matheson, and Madigan. Leinster, interesting enough, have signed, have made no new signings. Mm. Um, Rona Garas, Lara Shell have signed. Bryce Doolan, Dylan Layden, and Will Skelton. Uh, Zebes and Dunners will be joined at Rassing by Kurtley <laughs> Beale, who, I don't know if you saw this, was interviewed by David Campesi about his move and Campesi asked him who'd be coached who'd be coached by in Racing. He goes, Oh fuck. I don't know, mate. That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> no idea who his coach is gonna be. Jeez, lad. I was kinda hope, I was hoping he might um he might like try and guess or try and spoof like Pierre <clears throat> uh, Pierre <laughs> Mignone. Mignone. <laughs> Jacques uh, Jacques Cousteau <laughs> Well no In typical Aussie fashion Gerard Deportino <laughs> Well he'll definitely be the French coach If they ever make a movie It'll yeah. be 100% yes. Yeah The other one the big, Well not the big one I See after the World Cup you forget very quickly. Everyone moves on, and then you forget about uh, Matsushima. Do you remember that that Japanese winger at the World Cup, mm. killing it, scoring tries for fun, going unbelievably well? That's the best thing about World Cups. You find out something about someone from a, a, a like a country you knew less about, and you're like, that guy is just like dominating on the world stage. And he signed for Claremont apparently, and everybody was kind of Did wondering he? what he's going to do. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, That's brilliant, man. Yeah, I loved him. I wonder how he Claremont's a good place for him to be as well. Yeah, yeah, good side, good rugby. Like to spin the ball around. That's yeah. brilliant. 
good addition. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is happening? The sa- English Premier salary cap is going to drop from seven million to five million, but teams will be allowed two marquee players outside of that, which is another decent move, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's it was. It was potentially looking like it was going to unravel a little bit and just continue to not unravel, just kind of spiral out of control a little bit financially. But then I suppose mm. playing for England is going to keep the English players local um, because true. Um, I don't know what way the salary cap is in France, but they seem to be getting paid more. Um, <clears throat> so they mm-hmm. need to have that incentive to keep the premiership um, competitive and keep talent there. Yeah, no, I think it's ultimately a good one. Um, okay, that's loads of rugby news. Uh, let's get James Hook on the show uh, in part two. Come right up. You're listening to Baz and Andrew's House of Rugby on Joe, together with Guinness. Okay, we've got James Hook on the show. James, you look properly isolated there. Curtains drawn. <laughs> <laughs> How's uh, how are you getting on? I'm all right, thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me, boys. Uh, just trying to get away downstairs, out the way from the kids. Got three boys, so it's uh, it's not quiet in my house. I know, um, I know the feeling. Just do as many podcasts as you possibly can. Grand <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, how's how's isolation been right now for the three wee ones? Ah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. We've been lucky with the weather, haven't we? But um, I don't know about you boys over there, but we've had some great weather. So the kids have been getting outside and uh, playing about in the garden and things. But uh, yeah, not not much homeschooling going on. You mind? Yeah. I'm sure. What age are the kids? Uh, 10, 4, and, well, nearly 5 and 3. Okay. Hectic okay. enough. Does it get easier? Myself and Barry are in the thick of it. Uh, no, I can't <laughs> say it gets easier, boys. I'd, I'd like to say it does, but uh, are they busy? Like I say, three boys, it's, uh, it's always going to be busy. But what, what have you got? How many kids uh, have you got? We've got three. We had our, our third last summer. Um, so we've, they're 5, 3, and 1. So, oh, flipping out. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Tactic in, in the trenches. <clears throat> I've infant twins, James. So ten months oh, old, nice boy, boy and a girl. Yeah, <clears throat> one foul swoop, uh, and they've started now waking up in the middle of the night and just having the crack. So it's uh, uh, it's chaos. You all the way, and you've done and dusted now, eh? I know, yeah, and I've been so smug, Trim. will tell you for the last ten months, I've been like, this is easy, and then the last two <laughs> weeks, they've been like, right, changing it yeah, up. So. They start walking. The cupboard locks a lot now. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, our our wee one, <clears throat> Katie just started taking a few steps there, but um, she looks like um Tucker from there's some uh, something about Mary when she's walking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so she'll get through that phase, and then I'll be chaos after that. But she's like, no, no I got this. Fine. I got this. You're trying to yeah. help her. She's like, no, <laughs> yeah. I got this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as as it be nice to kind of, it's obviously you know not ideal the way fi- things finished up. You know, you would have liked to have got a send off, but is that nice period now getting uh, spend some time with the kids and then tra- transition from there? Yeah, no, it is. It's, like you say, it's not ideal the way uh, it's obviously finished off. But obviously, once the, the lockdown started, I had a good feeling. So obviously, I didn't know my retirement at the start of the year. And uh, yeah, like you say, it would have been nice to finish off with a couple of games. But yeah, it's, you know, it was obviously bit more important things going on so i understand that but yeah it would have been nice to finish off with the game but um yeah so way it goes you know i can't complain about a, a decent career so i'm looking ahead now to, to the future really yeah and you were very you were very clear like there's a lot of lads we kind of they would kind of struggle with you know making a decision like that but you were it sounds like you were pretty clear you wanted to finish up <laughs> yeah I, i'm 35 this month now so 
not getting any younger boys, you know, it's like, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I've lost a bit of pace over the last year or two and, you know, I suppose I, I can see the gaps, but uh, can't get through them now. So it's, it's time, to, time to finish off, I think. Yeah, that's frustrating. I could never, I could never even really see the gaps. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could get through the gaps. I just didn't know where they were. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, must, must be more frustrating for you. Um, uh, but t- tell us a little bit. You're obviously, um, it's a, it's a transition for you, kind of getting into retirement. But have you got plans for the future? I know you're doing a bit of coaching. Yeah, no, I've, I'm enjoying doing a bit of. Uh, coaching with the academy boys been coaching the Osprey under 18s um enjoying doing some kicking stuff as well um so doing some kicking coaching with, with the academy and some of the senior boys there uh is the Welsh rugby union to put on like a professional level three course coaching mm-hmm. course for us so there's quite a few of us on on that so we're coming to the end of that now so yeah I'm gonna get my tour in see see if I like it and see how it goes no very good is there any other any of the other Ospreys doing it then a few of the other lads doing it yeah, so the Ospreys, uh, Paul James, you know, prop, um, Justin Tipperick, Bradley Davis, second row, uh, Lee Halfpenny's doing it as well. So is it, it's about nine or ten of us on, on the wow. course, Dan Fish from the Blues fullback. So it's the first year they've actually put this professional players course on for us. So, um, yeah, it's just, it just seemed like a no-brainer for me to jump on it, like, you know. Yeah, everybody finishes at the same time then. Everybody's trying to get the same jobs. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's not many of those jobs there, so but that's all good experience. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's plan A. Is plan B? Um, obviously, you're doing the slightly more unusual route with becoming an author. I think whenever you, whenever someone says I'm, I'm become I'm become an author, like straight away your street cred has gone through the roof. Like you see, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, the the credibility's just gone gone through the roof. But tell us a little bit about that process, um, becoming an author, and and how that came about. Yeah, as when I was playing in Gloucester, uh, my eldest boy Harrison, who's who's ten now, uh, there's a book fair in in the school after after he finished, so we went in to go and get a book, and he's rugby mad, so he he wanted a rugby book and for for children, obviously, but th- there was there was none there, and um, a lot of football books for children and, and other sports, mm. but so I said, you know, we'll, we'll have a look online, and could, couldn't really see any, you know, and um, so it just got me thinking a little bit, and thought, you know, especially in Wales, everybody's rugby mad, and you know, it's quite similar over there with you guys. So uh, yeah. I got in touch with a family friend who was uh, called Mal Pope, who's a musician, does a bit of work for the BBC, and just said, you know, any children's authors? Because um, I got a few ideas. He put me in touch with Dave Brayley, who, who I've collaborated the book with. Um, and, yeah, we, we we met each other. So it started pretty much straight away. You know, he, he was on board with me. We were, we were on the same page. Excuse the pun, but... Uh, yeah, we just we just went from there, and um, I think once we wrote uh, written the first book, it was sort of getting someone to to buy into it. Then, trying to get a publisher, so there's a bit of a wait. But then um, Pete Burns was the publisher, the Scottish publisher, called uh, Polaris. He uh, he loved it, um, and yeah, it went from there really. So we also had to get a literacy agent as well. So things are completely new to me really. Um, yeah, yeah. But something something different, and yeah, so it was out. Sorry, it was supposed to be out on the 4th of June, but obviously with, with the pandemic and all that sort of stuff going on, it's been put back to October the 1st for the first book. So we've got a two-book contract. So yeah, hopefully it'll go it, well. What's it about? Uh, what's the premise of the book? <clears throat> so basically, it's um, it's based on on myself. Um, so it's a, it's a young boy called Jimmy. Uh, so when I was growing up, you know, I was uh, 
I was sort of a, a gangly, skinny, asthmatic, wore Ghostbuster glasses, that sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, just, <laughs> but I, 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 I had a dream to I play. I have it all. To, yeah. yeah. Can see it. You can see the image now, can you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I had a dream to play play rugby for Wales, you know, and uh, yeah, I suppose like every young boy and, and girl in Wales, you know, they all want to, they've got dreams and a lot of them want to play for Wales in rugby. So I thought, you know, I'd put all that into, into a children's book. So, you know, a lot of ups and downs and my career has never been so straightforward. So, you know, that all sort of resonates in the book. So hopefully that'll come across anyway. Yeah. And then, so how, how do you follow up then for, it, it? it's a two book series, then have you got plans yeah. kind of on down the line or have you got, is it like, is it like Game of Thrones? Are you kind of thinking we'll see where this <laughs> takes us, or have you got a bit of a plan in place? Uh, I think we've got to see what it takes you. I think ideally we we would like to to do more, but um, like I say, the first one's out October the first, so I suppose it depends how how that goes. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people you know I've spoken to excited about it, children in particular, especially you know young young boys and girls trying to encourage those to read as well. That's important, particularly mm-hmm. boys. They don't want to don't want to read really. Let's be fair. So. I don't feel encouraged sort of the adults to, to read with them as well. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, very so, good. No, good for you. <clears throat> so, yeah, so look, take us back. You were a gangly, uh, skinny, Ghostbusters wearing asthmatic. Uh, how did you go from that to, uh, I suppose, to kicking into being a professional rugby player at 18? And as we said in the intro, actually, earlier on, that you're one of the most talented players that both of us had seen uh, grace the rugby pitch. So there's a huge step there. Uh, from what you've described, so so, uh, what was it like for you transitioning to to becoming a professional rugby player? Well, I don't know. I started doing a bit of chest and arms and wore contact lenses, so that helped a little bit. Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, well, I thought every every kid in, in Wales and you know, a boy and girl loves playing rugby, but I sort of played a lot of other sports, sort of football, uh, played cricket. So it wasn't until probably 16, 17 years of age where I sort of started taking rugby. Seriously, and I, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but for a long time, well, especially when you're, when you're a kid, you, you play uh, football on a Saturday and rugby on a Sunday. But as you get older, the, the rugby moves to a Saturday, so I sort of had a decision to make. Uh, and for me, it was rugby or football. I, I chose rugby, thankfully. And um, yeah, it was from sort of 16, 17 where I kicked on then. And you know, you start playing county rugby and you start getting selected for like the Welsh youth setup, things like that. And, yeah, so that's when I sort of started taking it seriously because I was a scrum half as well up until the age of 17 and then right. I moved to, to fly half then just uh, in my first season of senior rugby. Yeah, is is that um like that's that's an interesting take and I'd, I'd, be, I'd be down the same lines of thinking it's, it helps for kids to to develop uh, skills through by, by playing a load of different sports and uh, and being a kid basically. Um, yeah. So were you starting off as as coaching under 18s now is that kind of something that you you really want to take into your uh i suppose your your philosophy in coaching that kids need to to develop like i i saw arson wenger saying recently about arsenal under sixes or sevens when they're signing these kids they're they're getting them into a football program and Hmm. they're not developing other skills they're not developing even how to fall out of a tree or how to you know yeah, so they're actually yeah, getting, yeah. believe it or not they're getting parkour trainers into these premiership teams to teach kids how mm-hmm. to fall and that kind of crack which is seems bizarre but um yeah so is that is that that's obviously something that you, that you believe in yeah and i think obviously what's changed now is you know there's a lot of academy systems things like that have been brought in to take more seriously and 
like I say, when I was sort of 16, 17, all I wanted to do was play. Like, you know, I was playing football on Saturday, rugby on a Sunday. And, you know, I could play three, four games a week. But now everything's managed. Probably a bit too much, if you're honest. You know what I mean? I think it's important to get these boys playing regularly. You know, some academy boys of 18 years of age, you know, will, will play probably, you know, once every two weeks sometimes. You know, and I think it's got to be playing more than that, you know. And um, I think, yeah, especially young years, you want to get as much rugby under your belt as, as possible. And especially, you know, from, from a personal point of view, that's, that's what I think. Yeah, as much exposure to uh, different sports, but different activities and just running around, being kids, having the crack. As you say, Barry, learning how to fall correctly. Like <laughs> mm. um, I was playing with my young fellow in the, in the garden the other day and and I um, we were playing with the ball and, and the ball went over the fence. And I was like, whenever I was a kid, if a ball went over the fence, I thought nothing of it. You just whipped over that fence like it wasn't there yeah, yeah. but mm. at 35 i'm looking at that fence going oh, <laughs> i'm gonna wreck myself on that fence. how many nettles are over the fence <laughs> nettles, <laughs> nettles yeah. dictate everything in child nettles yeah. and fences they're the two big they're they're more important they play a bigger role in childhoods than the mothers and fathers i think <laughs> um but yeah it's just getting kids kind of just as you say, Barry, being kids and getting uh, loads of exposure. So you you played lots of cricket and uh, football and everything else then. Yeah, all that. Yeah, tennis. Just just things like that. You know, we grew up on um, sort of a street. A lot of my mates live close by, so it was just a case of you know we'd go out sometimes summer holidays. You know, sort of eight nine in the morning, and you know <laughs> we wouldn't come back till about sort of seven eight at night. You know what I mean? Yeah. We'd probably have a packet of crisps all day, and, that, and that's it. Like you know and. Uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. That, that's the way it was, you know. But I suppose you know, with, with everything else going on, things have changed uh, a bit, a little, you know, at the moment. So, yeah, mm. I suppose. It I suppose that, like, and the, the 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 point you made about players playing less games now at eighteen, nineteen, like you're still developing mm. massively at that age, right? Um, I I remember not really kicking on till I was probably twenty one, twenty two to kind of have developed a rounded enough game to or way to play and that was because I was just playing week in week out and training every day so do you think it's we've gotten to a point now where we've gone down a certain route too far in terms of managing players and we need to come back out of it and and let just let players play as often as possible yeah maybe maybe I think I think you just look at like pre-season training you know you can you can train for months on end and do as much sort of tackling practice kicking running whatever you whatever you want but as soon as you come to that first game, it's completely different. And I think that match practice is is so key. And you know, I've I've noticed I've done a lot of pre-seasons over the years, and you think you're ready for the game, and then that first game comes, you're blowing. You know, you're not quite on the money, and you need sort of three, four games to get into it. And I think every player can sort of uh, resonate with that. So, yeah, I think playing is always no substitute for playing. Yeah. Mm. So so that that transition, um, James, take us take us um, take us through that. <clears throat> Obviously, like as you say, you started getting involved in, in wheels under seventeens, eighteen schools, twenty ones. Yeah. It might have been, and then uh, and then got, you you moved to Ospreys, and uh, it was the Galacticos, and it was like um, <laughs> all the fake tan, all the white teeth, um, and and an incredible group of, of players, and we got hammered by I don't know how many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you look back on that with fond memories, and um, and tell us would you still keep in touch with all those fellas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, yeah, I keep in touch with quite a lot of the boys. But um, yeah, I suppose coming through for the, the Wales under 18s, that was my first sort of proper taste of, of sort of international rugby, if you like. Um, it was the youth team, so the, the, the Wales 
under 18 schools was seen as the the best 18s team and then there was the youth so I played played for the youth and then didn't play representative rugby until under 21s then um, and that's when I sort of really sort of I suppose came, came onto the scene if you like um, I was playing for Neath at the time yeah I had, actually had my first Welsh cap uh, before I started the game for the Ospreys which was um, oh, wow. which was yeah, quite special <clears throat> so it was on the Argentina's tour in 2006 and then even even though I had my sort of my first cap, I still felt like I had to, you know, establish myself for, for my region. Lynn Jones was the coach and you know, he's quite quite clever really. You know, he didn't just throw me in, you know, he sort of eased me in. Um there was Gavin Henson was there, Sean Connor was there at ten, Matthew Jones, if you remember. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had to sort of earn my stake there in the region. So yeah, once I did I think- that, you know, like you I think our first memory over here in Ireland of you coming onto the scene was that <clears throat> Sale match in uh, uh, in Liberty Stadium where you were yeah. six points down going into injury time, and you started in your own twenty-two and continued phase after phase for seven minutes, finishing off with Shane Williams scoring in the corner, and that was my first memory. Going, Jesus, who's this kid that come off the bench at sixty minutes? Yeah. And you looked like you'd been playing for years. Your confidence, you were heavily involved in that try, and then kicked the conversion to to win it. Then at the end. Uh, what are your yeah. memories of that day? That was that was, you know, incredible to watch. Yeah, it was special. And I think uh, I wasn't actually meant to be involved in the squad that game. I mean, Henson pulled out he had a groin strain just before the game, so Sean Connor started. I came onto the bench, and like you say, it was against Sale, and, and Sale at that time were pretty much like the Saracens have been the last few years. You know, they had an amazing squad. You know, Jason Robinson, Shabal, Cueto, Charlie Hodgson, Dwayne Peel, all these sort of boys, and I think they just league champions you know the kings of Europe at the time so it's a big test for us and I came on yeah with, a, with about 20 minutes to go and like you say we were losing the game and we went ridiculous amount of phases and I had a kick to, to win the game which um, yeah I suppose all helped to sort of cement my, my place in the squad there hmm. the look, um, You just looked like you were playing with complete freedom back then man is that was that you know uh, the the attitude that that that, uh, that Lynn Jones gave you was it just go out and play rugby I mean you had you know, when you look at the team, Shane, you know, Lee Burns, Shane Williams, Sonny Parker, yourself, even Alan Wynne Jones was, what was he? He's younger than you. Is he 1920? He must have been. Uh, like yeah, he's younger than me, Alf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's incredible to see to see the the wealth he had, but the, the manner in which he played as well was just looked like you were playing with that open freedom and fun that you talk about having grown up with that with your, with your own mates on the road. Yeah, no, and Lynn Jones is a great coach for us and uh, obviously we had a lot of success under Lynn and yeah, it was, we did play with a lot of freedom, you know, it was obviously a little bit of structure but nowhere near as much structure as in the game now. As a 10, you know, towards the end of my career, I'm, I'm writing pages after pages of moves trying to remember mm. both games. You know, back then you'd write two or three moves down, you'd know, you know them in your head because you've trained them all week and it was just go out and play. So it's definitely changed a lot since then. Mm. Yeah, yeah. One one thing that um, that... It sounds like you were known for um, having chatted to Tommy there during the week. Um, he he said one of the big things that he remembers about you was these rising speeches. And I'm not talking about like before the game. I'm talking about before a night in the beers. <laughs> so, was there a speech that night or was that kind of just slightly before your time? Or, or um, he, uh, he wait, said wait, my time. Yeah, he said there was a... There's William Wallace, there's Braveheart speech, there's any given Sunday, and then there's Hookie just before we go on the beers. <laughs> uh, 
They, they probably enjoy it because I'm so bad, that's why. So they, they pretend I'm good, but uh, no, I don't think so. Trust Tommy to say that. <laughs> Have you seen uh, Twin Town, the Welsh film Twin Town? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's, there's a character in there called Bryn Cartwright. So I think, uh, I think, I think they think I'm like him, really. So have a, have a look at it, and you'll know what I mean. Okay. Yeah. We'll we'll re- that's a real one. We'll have to rewatch. Yeah. Spot on. Spot on. Um, uh, the other thing, James, I wanted to kind of settle something as well. <clears throat> Whenever Tommy went to the Ospreys, Tommy knew that I had moved from center to the wing, so he knew that I couldn't catch a high ball, right? <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, there was a, I think it was a, re, I think it was a 22 restart and, uh, I looked up and, uh, obviously Tommy and I kept in touch a good bit. I looked up yeah. and you, you looked at me holding the ball. You're about to kick off and you looked at me and then you went to Tommy and you went, is that him? And then <laughs> <laughs> you kicked it at me specifically because Tommy had told yeah. you I couldn't catch. He denies it. Uh, but I just want to get to the bottom of that. Did he tell you I couldn't catch? Uh, it's probably true, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently I did catch that one I can't remember Tommy said he was more surprised that I caught that one <laughs> what, I, what I love about it is that you didn't know who he was so you had to ask Tommy so he was obviously saying Andrew Trimble can't catch the ball and you were like which one is Andrew Trimble <laughs> Tommy goes nah, the one that looks like he can't know, catch <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah very good nah, but Tom, in fairness Tommy was brilliant for us he's, he's amazing because it's rare sort of international players from Ireland come and move. Probably, he wasn't at the peak then, but he wasn't far off it. And he came and coming to the Ospreys did him, did him the world of good. And he was such a benefit to the Ospreys. He was incredible. A bit like yourself, and played, played wing and centre. And whatever he played was, was outstanding. Yeah, that was the catalyst for him, I think. Whenever he moved across, he was kind of fed up a little bit, not getting, not getting maybe as much joy as he, as he, as he should have got. And then he went across there. And I think maybe, as you say, the, the style just suited him. Seemed to play a little bit more more rugby in the centre when he went over there, got his hands on the ball more and just just dominated and then took that over to Ireland. Yeah, 100%. The crowd, the fans loved him here as well. Is that right? Yeah. Louis Walsh, they called him, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Hookie, you mentioned um, uh, Twin Town there, but I believe um, that's not that's not your favourite movie, is it? Uh, what for you? What for you? No, mate. <laughs> Home Alone's your favourite movie, I hear. I do. Yeah, I'm a bit. Uh, I'm a bit of a kid at heart, I think, and a creature of habit as well. So yeah, Home Alone, one and two, I love. Big Daddy, all the kids' films. Yeah, yeah. So Classic. I've. Uh, so I'm. I'm a big fan of Home Alone as well. So I've put oh, together. Yeah. I've put together a, a Home Alone quiz just to test your knowledge. Uh, here we go. Yeah. If okay. You're happy. If you're happy enough. Um, we'll kick it off here. Um, question one. Uh, Kev, the the iconic Kev, the picture of Kevin with his hands on his face and the scream, yeah. the famous scream. What was that caused by? Oh, you put aftershave on, didn't he? Yeah, one from one. Uh, Harry and Marv, they're the wet bandits in the first movie, but they get renamed for Home Alone 2. Sticky bandits. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've started, so I will continue. Um, <laughs> The black and white film Kevin watches, this is a tricky one, by the way. The standard's going to get higher here. Right. The black and white film Kevin watches featuring the classic line, keep the, keep the change, you filthy animal. Um, what was the name of the film? Oh, it's a tough one. Oh, it's a tough one. I don't know. I yeah, don't know. You obviously shoot, shoots him and he uses the, the sound to, uh, yeah. to get rid of Ari and Mark. The firecrackers. 
Yeah. You got me there, mate. It was uh, Angels with Dirty Souls. Oh, does it ring? Oh, does it ring a bell? No, it doesn't ring a bell. No, <laughs> no, no, that's tricky. Um, what's the name of the kid that wets the bed and Kevin doesn't want to sleep beside him? Oh, Fuller. Fuller, well oh. done. Yeah, yeah <laughs> too too much Pepsi, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, right. In a conversation at the church, Kevin and Marley talk about an item of clothing. Marley says, that's nice. Kevin said, not for a guy in the second grade. You could get beat up for wearing something like that. Um, what were they talking about? In number two, you said? No, it's in the first one. Uh, he's talking to old man Marley, is he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I remember it. Yeah, you want me to tell you? Hat, hat, like a, like a little sort of hat. No, no. no, it's a sweater with a big bird knitted on it. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is easy now. What's Kevin's favorite type of pizza? Macaroni and cheese. No, yeah, cheese pizza. Cheese, cheese pizza, pizza, plain cheese, yeah. Plain cheese. Now, this, okay, this last question, right? Uh, I'm going to ask you for a quote. And you can get one point if you give us the quote in your Welsh accent, and you get two points <laughs> if you give it in the accent that it was um, delivered uh, in uh, in Home Alone. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to give you, Snicks. I'm going to give you to the count of ten to get your go. You lousy lion! No, can Curtis off my door. Yes, I'll give you wow. that. I'll yeah. give you that. that Two points. Two points. It was very close. Well done. I think I missed, missed a couple of words up there, mate. I was on the right uh, lines, wasn't I? Yeah, lousy. Yeah, the I attitude. Think, yeah, the attitude was pretty. The attitude made up for a slight <laughs> yeah, inaccuracy. Attitude was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well done, Jim. It's very good. Cheers, <laughs> <Sure>, mate. <clears throat> Jeez, people are going to love that. Uh, <laughs> this guy this guy played for Wales and the Lions and Perpignan and Gloucester and the Barbarians and everything. We haven't even touched on that. We're just talking about <laughs> home alone. Uh but on that, there's been lovely tributes pouring in, man. Um, rightly so, like Johnny Wilkinson, Dimitri Yash, Philly Adam Jones, Gordon Darcy. Um, but uh one thing I've always wanted to, if I was to send you is like send you a message is how much work did you put into your handoff? And uh, you know wh- where where did that come from? Because for not a not a huge man, what are you ninety ninety one ninety two kgs? Yeah, yeah, um, that's a skill that oh, man. You, if you watch your your highlight reel back, it's just handoff after handoff after handoff, which I love. Yeah, to be honest, I didn't put a great deal of work into it. It's not something I've I've grown up practicing. I think um, maybe because you know I am. So not not the biggest guy and playing at ten, you know, you do sort of you take the ball to the line a lot, and I think it's a lot of it is sort of um, sorry boys, a lot of it is uh, is sort of natural, I suppose. But um, Sean Edwards was was really good at um, teaching us, you know, how to do a handoff. You know, we, we practice it a lot under Sean Edwards, and also practice defending a handoff as well. But um, yeah, to be honest, I didn't put a great deal of work into it. I suppose it was a little bit natural, I suppose, because like because I've got long arms, I got a probably a longer reach than probably a lot of people think. So some players think that they've got me and then all of a sudden, you know, put a bit of a fend on and you you get away. So, yeah, you know, I did practice a little bit, but not not a great deal. Mm. That was incredible. You had all the skills, James. Um, I know anybody you chat to, you know, about your career, 
Um, everybody just talks about how talented you were, your vision. You could kick off both um, feet, your fan, both sides. Um, your distribution, footwork, everything was incredible. Um, you, you, I know you played a lot of 10 early on. You got a lot of joy early on. Was it, was it frustrating for you that, that kind of you got moved about a little bit, played a bit of 12, 13, 15 towards the end as well with, uh, with wheels? Yeah, that's probably one of the, the most asked questions that I get really. And like I say, I started at 10, um, played a lot of my rugby at 12, my early rugby at 12 as well. And I suppose it, it was frustrating, but like if, if I didn't play that amount of positions, perhaps I wouldn't have got the amount of caps that I did get. So I don't know, you know, it was a bit of a, a bit of a blessing perhaps as well. And I think it's the 2011 Six Nations pretty much sums up my career really, because I started, I think, the first game at 15. Um, then I moved to 10 against Scotland, felt they had a, a really good game. And obviously that's the position I preferred the most. And then John and Davis at 13 got injured during that game. So the next game against Italy, I thought, you know, I'd go on and play at 10, but because he was injured, I got moved to 13. So I played 10 centre and 15 throughout that whole Six Nations. So mm. that's pretty much the Six Nations as sums my career, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's well, tricky, yeah. Well, yeah, on more of a positive note, I, I would have looked at the the Grand Slam in, in 2008. And is that is that kind of the, the highlight for you, if you look back on, on that colourful career? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think you talk about the Ospreys, like early on we had a lot of success and early on in my international career we had a lot of success and yeah, that's got to be right up there and beating England and Twickenham where nobody really gave us a hope and um, went on to beat Scotland in the next game and the Irish game actually was, was quite funny and um, we played in Croke Park. Did you play in that? And? I did, yeah. I did play that. Yeah, I think it was on the bench, yeah. Yeah, I was on the bench as well and um, on the way to the the game, I always always carry my bag on the bus because I didn't like just waking around getting the bag from the bottom. So you just get your bag and go straight off. And yeah. you know that feeling when it's on the bus for like five, ten minutes into the journey and you no know, you feel like you forgot your passport and you're like, shit yeah. was I felt that with my kicking tee. And I knew and like I was really sort of diligent and made sure all my kick was packed, obviously. And I knew I'd forgotten my kicking tee. We weren't kicking the, the day before um in Crow Park and I'd left it in my other bag. So I was like you know, you know, it's like on the bus, everyone's quiet, listening to their music, the coaches in the front, the police escort, the motorbikes in front. And I'm like, I need my kicking team. What am I going to do? Like, you know, so I thought yeah, I, I need it. So I had to walk down the bus, had a tap, Gatlin on the shoulder and Neil Jenkins on the shoulder and just whisper and say, I've forgotten my kicking team. So Neil Jenkins wasn't happy at all. So we had to stop the bus, stop the police escort. I had to give the, had to give the guy, the, um, the policeman, my room key, tell him my room number. And fair play to him. He, Started straight back to the hotel, got my kicking tee, and he was he was at the stadium before we were. So he must have been flying around the streets of Dublin like uh, Carl Fogarty. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. I know the I know the feeling, not with the kicking tee, obviously. But um, I started bringing my bag on the bus because um, I had to. I always thought I'd forgotten my boots. If I put them underneath, then I never had the opportunity to check. I yeah. would look. I would open my bag, look, see my boots close my bag again and then I'd be like I bet you've forgotten your boots and I would have to recheck <laughs> and then that was the only way of getting around that I had to bring my bag in the bus with me and as yeah. you said if you, if you can't see it there and then it's I always had this theory if you play if you play 300 professional games 
like you know if you play in around, in around 300 professional games you'll forget your boots once you have one in 300 times you'll probably forget your boots or as you say you forget your kicking tee or something that's going to put you yeah, off massively my, my timing wasn't right for triple crown uh game in, in dublin probably <laughs> not the best time to forget my kicking tee but uh there we are. Neil Jenkins, every single game after that, for every match, used to say, have you got your tea? Have you got your tea? He was uh, just as scared as me then, but uh, I yeah. didn't forget it since. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, uh, that's it, great. Yeah. Well, James, listen, we have um, we know you're keen to get back um, back to the kids. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> listen, thanks so much for taking us down uh, memory lane and uh, you passed the Home Alone test. And um, thanks so much for, for giving us so much to kind of enjoy watching you play. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Really, really good of you. Yeah. Oh, pleasure, boys. Thanks for having me. COVID-19 or coronavirus is here. By taking a few simple steps, we can slow the virus down and help protect everyone. Wash your hands more often for at least 20 seconds with soap and water. If you cough or sneeze, use a tissue or cover your mouth with your elbow, then bin the tissue and wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth and keep surfaces clean. Distance yourself at least two metres, six feet away from other people, especially those who might be unwell. Stop shaking hands or hugging when saying hello or greeting other people. For updated factual information and advice, go to hse.ie or call 1850-24-1850. Protection from coronavirus. It's in our hands. Okay, welcome to the show, Jeff Neville, aka the Loose Head on Twitter. How are you doing, man? Not so bad, lads. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. We've got you down as our what do we have here earlier on Trimby? Our book uh, consultant, uh, sports, sports literature consultant. <laughs> suits me. I always knew reading would get me to the top, so that suits me. <laughs> you, you read, you read pure good, apparently. Yeah, I read really well. I know lots of words, so it's good, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, look, uh, how's lockdown been going for you, first and foremost? Yeah, grand, yeah. I mean, um, it's a good chance to kind of catch up on a few projects and to, to get the house in order, I suppose, and to to get all those jobs done that we said we'd do for for a few months. You know, I have no excuses mm-hmm. now, so. Yeah, bit of power hosing. Oh, man, love it. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, just new, kinda, it's a new norm. The new norm is is power hosing and podcasting. So um, I know you've been you've set up your own podcast. How's that going? Yes. Give, so, it, a, give uh, a little yeah. plug. Go on. We'll we'll totally allow it. Awesome. We'll edit it. <laughs> you can block the start out if you want. But uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's going well. A friend of mine kind of encouraged me to to start it up and stuff. But uh, about sixteen weeks in now, about sixteen episodes in. So wide range kind of a guest you know so like some players some coaches um but yeah it's going real well ben ryan was the last one i put that out there uh yesterday um that's getting a lot of positive traction i suppose yeah so yeah very interesting enough, fella yeah. yeah cool um and you were busy over the weekend or is it this coming weekend where you're walking three what is it thirty thousand steps three hundred thousand uh, steps yeah so that's this saturday coming now this me saturday and, uh, two of the lads were walking a hundred thousand each uh, for uh, self help Africa, so um, oh. I've w- I've waited for I don't know how long for rugby to come back on telly. And, you know, Super Rugby the first game on Saturday morning. I'll be out for a walk, so I missed that. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's a good cause in the end. You just walk around your sitting room, no? It's... No, no. I said I I said I'd branch out and go for the estate, um, so I just walk in a loop for 
you know, 13, 14 hours. Like, you know, I'd what probably, is that? How long will it take? I think one of the boys uh, texted there the last day and he said it's like walking from Limerick to Kilkee. So, um, when he said that, I, I kind of could have done without knowing that, like, to be honest with you, but uh, you know, I've gone to Kilkee for worse reasons, so it could be, it could be an all right one, you know. <laughs> You could be stopped in the way. I don't think you're allowed to walk that far. I think I'll be up on neighbourhood watch, uh, <laughs> walking around the estate over and over again. Um, okay, well, as our sports book uh, consultant, um, you've gone with Sam Warburton's open side, uh, David Epstein's the sports gene, and Andre Agassi's open. Um, I suppose what what quantifies a very good sports book for you? first of all I think first off it's honesty because like you read a lot a lot of sports books and you know players are too worried about upsetting people or you know athletes are too worried about maybe they're how they're going to be portrayed afterwards should they leave stuff in or out like I mean I don't know if you've ever read Bernard Jackman's one uh, Blue Blood but um, from the very start I think the first line that is uh, Michael Cechia telling him that he told him, like, I'll decide when you retire. And for something like that to be put in the book straight away, you're kind of like, right, this is going to be, you know, no punches pulled kind of a thing. Like, so uh, I think once people are honest in it, now I know this, the sports um, the sports gene, it's not really about honesty. It's more science and stuff like that. Um, so you've no, you've, no, you've no choice but to be honest, I suppose. But um, no, open side, I thought, just because it's so relevant, I thought we'd talk about it, you know, I mean, very recently retired he's coached my Wales now as well and hell of a career and a young or a, a young retiree as well you know and with Andre Agassiz then he's kind of the other side of the coin you know he had a long career but you still got to see a side of him that you don't see on television you got to see the athlete you know who he really was as a person and as well so I suppose honesty to answer that question probably what mm. makes the best yeah I agree um I haven't read Sam Warburton's book um and I, but I think I will now. Obviously, after after you've put it forward uh, as one of your favorites, so give us an insight into that. Um, you know, obviously he's he did retire. What was he? Twenty nine? Was he twenty nine? Yeah, twenty nine. Um, surely seems sure, seems surely to, it would be more difficult for him to have been honest because he's not he's in a wheels setup now, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, and, and because he has the perfect nice guy image, Captain the Lions. Mm. Um, and he's he, that's what everybody thinks about when you think of Sam Warburton that would have been I'd be shocked if he was like unveiling massive secrets he's, I think that's probably what I like most about about it is that like he breaks the book up because he played seven he breaks it up as well in between chapters into the seven kind of pillars of leadership but he doesn't oh. do it in kind of like a holier than thou way like and mm. it, you know when you say that there you're kind of thinking, oh, he's going to be preaching at me now for the whole, like, it's really not. And there's actually one story he tells in the book, and Andrew, it's just the way you said it there, you'd be shocked if, you know, he kind of came across as different. Uh, he's playing against Australia, and uh, he says that he got really thick with Hooper after a while, and that he pinned him to the ground, and he throttled him, and he told him, if you touch me again, I'll slit your throat, or I'll cut your throat, or something like that. And, like, like that whole nice guy image of yeah. Warburton, like he didn't have to put that in the book and know him like Bar Hooper would probably ever know. Like, but I suppose that wouldn't show the mm. full picture of who he was yeah. as an athlete or who he was as a player either, you know, to have that aggressive side as well, which you probably need to, to, to have at the top of that, you know, at the top of that game. But um, 
yeah, he's real open about it and he talks about the red card against France uh, in that World Cup in 2011. He opens up about, um, you know, leading the lines. Um, he, he tells a very interesting story about his captaincy and stuff like that. You know, he was, he was captain of Wales at 22. That was the first time. And uh, when he was offered the captaincy, he was against the Barbarians first. And he initially thought that he hates captaincy. He didn't want it. But um, when he, his dad and his girlfriend at the time asked him, do you know, do you want to do it? He replied, I have to do it. So it's almost that sense of obligation that I can't say no. I'm just going to have to, to do it. Like, yeah. like It's like Jon Snow. Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, that's for that reason that you should be king or whatever. Was that something like that? Well, that's kind of it. And he, he, he talks about how um, Gatlin showed him a video then of uh, he made a tackle and someone got in over the ball and he strayed and then congratulated him and everything like that. And Gatlin just says, that's captaincy, that's it, you know. And he walked away a little bit more understanding. But um, he, he really does open up about a lot, you know. He opens up about the lines. There's one... Um, <clears throat> He said he, his first captaincy was against the Barbarians, first game as captain. And he said that uh, the Barbarians were something that he'd have no interest in playing for because he couldn't win. He'd either go out drinking and play poorly, which would reflect badly on him, or he wouldn't go out drinking and he'd take it seriously and then he'd be seen kind of differently by the boys playing with the Barbarians. You know, he, he gives lots of little insights like that into who he is as a person. But then, you know, following that, he tell, like there's just a little clip where he is carrying the Olympic torch for Wales, and uh, he makes the front page of the paper. But above it, I think it says something like, uh, "Please finally catch pedophile who was on the run" or something like that. So he makes his, <laughs> you know, there there is that humour in with the series yeah, yeah. as well, you know, uh, which is great. So it's it's um he, he is quite honest in it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sold. Uh, yes, David Epstein. Um, so, right, this book basically uh, from my, I've, you've, you recommended this to me about three weeks ago and I was well into it, but then I started reading Normal People because it turned me <laughs> So There's, no, I'm, there's I'm, no sex. There's no sex in the sports team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not enough. So I've, I'm, I'm reading the both. I went back to it yesterday just to, uh, to get another few chapters in and uh, so give us the premise from having read it all. Essentially, he just looks at the whole, I don't know how to sum this up in such few words, you know, and probably if he hears me saying this, he'll, he'll probably cry because it probably took so long to, to write. But he essentially just looks at the debate between nature and nurture and he traces how far science has come into kind of solving that argument. Now, um, I suppose the beauty of this book is that... Uh, in school I didn't do sciences and you know I there was a lot of times reading the book that I was like oh I know some of these words you know but I didn't really get the whole idea but then in other parts it kind of breaks it down to a point where you're like okay I, I do understand that I, I know where he's coming from now and kind of I, I can I can grasp what he's talking about there but he looks at everything he looks at athletes um from Kenya to Jamaica to America um, he talks about sport from basketball to high jumping to softball to huskies in Alaska. And um, he just talks about how genetics, genes, which is probably the same thing, um, race, culture, environment, gender, all these add up uh, to make essentially an athlete what it is. 
So, he, so was this like a counter argument against uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who'd written Outliers and Blink and stuff like that, where it was uh, more about uh, nurture, where you you build up your ten thousand hours and you you essentially become a, a master at something, and that was the key. Whereas he is this the counter argument that okay, that is important to do your practice and to work hard at something, but some people are genetically uh just made for sport for a certain sport or or a style type of movement and that gives them an advantage is that right yeah like um i think he sums it up when he says you need both like an athlete without one or the other like without nature or nurture is not going to make it and essentially he says if only accumulated hours of practice matter why do we separate men and women in athletic competition and i know that's that that really kind of Sim- oversimplifies an argument you know um, but kind of he, he does dispute the 10,000 hours like tell stories of a guy who suddenly became a high jumper because he was dunking a basketball ne- mm. like never never high jumped before and in 18 months later he won the world championships you know so yeah I, I read that one that's interesting because he's up he, put, he puts him side by side with the guy who's who's been doing it like the Tiger Woods of high jumps he's been doing it since he was five alongside his dad and uh, he was the, you know, ultimate professional. And uh, he even, he, he beat him, basically, didn't he, in the World Championships after yeah. only a year and a bit. And then he, he but he, the interesting part was he didn't develop then for the next few years after he kind of plateaued at that level, right? Yeah, I think he had an extra long Achilles tendon or something like that, which offered him the springboard. But I remember okay. reading it and just thinking like, if you had put all the, this time into being the best high jumper in the world and a long rocks up someone and just beats you, like how absolutely sick you would be at mm. the end of the day looking at like it, it would almost be enough to kind of say, you know what, I'm just going to give this up. But um, It's a very specific skill though, high jumping. Like it's obviously uh, anyone can jump really. So I suppose I never mastered it. Genetically, obviously that's one that's going to stand out because it's it's one real essential movement but when it comes to ball sports or um yeah anything that involves loads of different movement or loads of different skills and that's obviously going to make um a massive difference mass difference yeah i think did you read the part about uh when he's talking about basketball and uh the height difference and he's talking about um just for anyone maybe who hasn't read it you know they say if you're between six foot and six two in america uh and you're between the ages of 20 and 40 you have it. I think it's uh, your chances of playing in the NBA are one in five million or five in a million. Sorry, yeah. uh, if you're six two to six four, it's twenty in a million. If you're six ten to seven foot, it's thirty two thousand in a million. But if you're seven foot or over, there's a one in six chance you'll play in the NBA. So that's even kind of without ball skills, yeah. or you know. So that's that, incredible. So yeah, that's like if you know six people in America, they're seven foot or plus tall. You one of them will be in the NBA. In summary, I know you're like cautious about oversummarizing, but um, in the age-old debate of uh, nature versus nurture, um, he comes out and says it it needs a bit of both, basically. Um, Mm. Because this reminds me a little bit of a a Declan Kidney press conference. Well, (laughs) yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fair enough. It's like that's anyone that would argue the, that one yeah. is more important than the other is kind of it's ridiculous because every sport is different. Every uh, 
athlete is different. Every person is different. So they've, you know, so much like we were talking actually earlier on, Jeff, to, to James Hook about um, his development into, into being, you know, as talented as he was. It was that he played every different sport and was out on the road day and night as a kid and, and growing up. And he wouldn't be as good a player as he was now if it wasn't for that. So um, I suppose that is the way I'd look at when I come out of reading this. I'm sure I look at it that when you've got kids and, uh, or you're coaching or anything, how do you use this knowledge and uh, apply it to how you'd raise a kid who wants to get into sports? You know, it's... Uh, uh, would you, you do you look at the kid and say, God, this kid is has got incredibly strong Achilles tendon. He's he's going to be a high jumper. Is it that? You know, do, do people go to that level? Yeah, they do talk in the book about testing, and certain athletes are tested for maybe fast twitch or slow twitch muscles and stuff like that, and they're suddenly changed uh, from one sport to another. Like, um, there was one uh, athlete in it, and she I can't remember what her initial sport was, but they they just decided to change her uh, to skiing, to downhill skiing. And um, they compared her afterwards to a giraffe on skis or something like that, but she had an Olympic medal. So yeah. You're, you're kind she was of, an Australian Australian lifeguard, I think, wasn't it, or something like was that? that it? Yeah. Um, yeah. She could, she could do a lot of the movement because of how much hard she trained, you know, how hard those, those, uh, open swimmers or whatever they are in Australia train, but she couldn't ski basically. So she was like going around with her medal and her flowers and she kept falling flat in her face. Yeah. It's bananas. Like, um, but even the book itself now, like even to get away from the science side of it, probably what I enjoyed most about it was just the different facts you learn about sports. Like, uh, Mm. you know, again, there's one about the NFL and it said one centimeter and three kilograms extra of weight translates into about $45,000 worth of extra income. Just to be that lucky to have that extra centimeter, like you can't coach height, you know, you can put on weight, but you can't get taller. So, Mm. like to to be blessed with that just extra centimeter and to be told, right, you're now more more valuable as an athlete, you know, those things. Okay, well, then finally, bringing us on to. Andre Agassi Open, which uh, if you're looking for an honest book, it's probably the most honest uh, sports book you can find. He gets pretty controversial in it. He names and shames everyone. He goes to town and a few people. Um, and then he makes it really specific about his memory of, of games is phenomenal, I suppose, although I'm sure he, he can just watch back and, and write about them. But um, the detail and the memory he has is incredible. And then it does open up that that conversation about nature versus nurture because he's He's coming from a background of at five years of age, his father building a machine that peppered balls at him 2,000 times a day. Uh, so he didn't really have a choice, right? Yeah. Um, it's probably almost an anti-sports book. Like the man hates tennis. Mm. And uh, he opens up at the start and he says, like, I just don't like tennis. And you're kind of thinking, well, you've done pretty well for a man who doesn't really like tennis. Um, but uh, yeah, it's... I mean, it's also probably a book about how not to raise children, maybe. Um, I don't know if that's a controversial one to say, but like the dad really did heap pressure on him, you know, from that machine you mentioned, Barry, there to, you know, know, didn't he bet the family's life savings on him to beat a man when he was still just a youngster? Something like 10 or something like that. Um, So it's, but but he he did mention that he asked his father afterwards. <clears throat> would he change anything? It's like, no, I wouldn't change a thing. And you kind of get it from Agassi that he, he maybe wouldn't change. I don't know. There's something about it. You, you don't like, 
okay, you look at him now. He's married to Steffi Graf. He's got beautiful children. He's got a uh, incredible foundation that's uh, supporting disadvantaged children in in Nevada. He's one of the most interesting and best athletes of our generation. I mean, without the father, we you've got none of that. So that's that's where I get a bit, you know, I'm like, fuck, I, I just, I want to build a machine and pepper my son with balls. <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me a bit of Tiger Woods as well, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, the way Tiger Woods' dad would, um, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, there's, a, there's Jeff, Jeff Bernstein's one and he mentions that Tiger Woods would watch his dad uh, yeah. hitting balls in the garage, you know, as a kid and he'd get fed when the, when the dad hit a ball. Um, <clears throat> You know, mm. it kind of reminded me a bit of that, like maybe just mm. to the extreme. If we, and like, if we, lo- if we lose them, if we lose those kind of lunatic fathers, we don't have Tiger Woods, we don't have Michael Jordan, we don't have uh, uh, Andre Agassi. That's true, so. I suppose. But I mean, at the same time, like I can't, I can't sit here and advocate, yeah, we should probably pepper balls at children. <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing it does, so it touches massively on the, the, the parenting side, which is really interesting to see the effect that that has on him. And that's obviously massively a part of why he hates tennis. But the like this, this, the one kind of sport, uh, kind of like psychological um, effect of that is um, he, become, he becomes a perfectionist, doesn't he? And then there's mm. kind of a, a moment of realization that he doesn't need to win every point. He just needs to be slightly better than the uh, guy he's playing against mm, which is yeah. a really interesting yeah. kind of he's obviously got that um uh that mindset from from growing up and and his dad trying to make him a perfectionist trying to make him as good as possible but even with that massively intense upbringing they've still missed something like a a little bit of a um something that he can capture that's going to actually make him even better yeah um it's 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 just interesting that uh you know, you look at Warburton's book and he says, like, I want to be the best. And he flat out wants to be the greatest number seven to ever play the game. And then yeah. you look at Agassi and he says, I just need to be slightly better than the guy I'm playing against at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I, I, I'm not sure um, about the psychology behind it all. But it's it, like I found it amazing how that kind of psychology works for different athletes as well. Uh, to say, like, oh, I just need to win rather than I need to be. You know, you have these guys who say, oh. I, I made a couple of mistakes in that game or, you know, I could have done better. And then you have another attitude who says, well, I won the game. So what does it really matter? You know? And so I found that side of it very interesting, but even just like, you know, one thing that stuck out for me as well is what his life would be like if his career paralleled at the same time as the rise in social media. Mm. And, you know, there's two things kind of, I think about that. The first is, Maybe one side of it is would it have offered more of an insight into his life, more an insight into why he kind of he rebelled or you know stuff like that. Or the other side of it then is would it just have been a massive invasion of his privacy and kind of impacted him on the other way, you know? And the guys like Warburton, you know, were around during social media and probably had to to tailor their social lives or. I don't know, probably a better way of saying that, but social their lives outside of rugby around yeah. that better. But, you know, I guess he didn't have that problem, but would having that insight into his life helped commentators, journalists, fans understand 
who he was and why he acted, you know, in certain ways. Like, you yeah. Know? Yeah. Potentially. Um, the first of all, like the, the contrast between Warburton and Agassi, I think there's maybe something in Warburton playing a team sport. So he always has to stand out. Um, Agassi, if, if, if he wins, he wins every time he goes in the court, you know, no one, no one remembers, you know, maybe him, his serving percentage being down or, you know, some sort of element of his game not being great. If he keeps winning, it doesn't matter. He's always going to be, um, the best, the best in the world as, as, um, Warburton says there. Um, but yeah, the, the social media thing's interesting. Actually, it'd be interesting to see in a parallel universe, what the impact of that would have been. Um, it certainly would have, uh, took, um, took the impact out of his book because you would have known more about him. Uh, he would have had more exposure because social media, as, as we've, like, we're inclined to think more and more when he was playing, you might have found out more about him. People would have been commenting more on his life and he might have been able to grapple with his upbringing a little bit more and come to a better understanding of it. Um, but that's the positive side of social media. We spoke um, last week uh, with Jacob Stockdale about the negative side of social media and um, people chirping in on other people's lives and feeling like they have an opinion. Uh, whenever it's not, it's generally not welcomed. So there's kind of, there's both sides of that, isn't there, Jeff? Oh, yeah. Like I was chatting to uh, to Sammy Arnold about it. And he said he knows guys and he's played with guys that after a game go straight into the dressing room, turn on their phone and straight away search their name on Twitter just to see what people are saying about him. Like, you know, um, like I'm not like, you know, there there is a massive negativity, negativity towards it. And, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons, but just maybe, you know, a lot of, Let's say when Agassi was rebelling or wearing certain clothes or dying hairs, getting the earrings and stuff. If people had an insight into his life, maybe it might have made journalists or commentators that bit more kinder towards him. Mm. I, you know, I, I don't know. Like it is, it's, mm. it's something we probably we never have the answer to. But it, it was just an interesting aspect. I thought maybe of you know the a lot of a lot of recent sports books you'd read. It's all about social media and, you know, somewhere social media will make an introduction in the book. But with Agassiz, you know, it wasn't around, so it's not mentioned, you know. So Yeah, and if he had have known, uh, he was obviously had a big hang up over his, his baldness. If he had known, everybody knew, everybody knows you're bald. If he knew it was out there, um, then it might, it might not have bothered him as much. Yeah, um, didn't he tell? He tells a story about how he had a shower and his wig disintegrated, and he didn't know how to prepare for the game suddenly because he was so worried about his hair. Um, I suppose that's how we all feel now with Zoom calls going on, and uh, nobody can get a haircut these days as well. But uh, <laughs> you know, if, if if yeah, I suppose yeah, if he knew that we knew or that fans knew, and that nobody really cared if he was bald, you know, that's mm. that's an element that he controlled then of his preparation for a mm. game rather than probably getting spun out before mm. Mm. yeah well as a book it's uh i think <clears throat> the way it's put together the first chapter is one of the most gripping chapters you can read it jumps in where he's in his potentially his final game ever in the u.s open and he gets through it all he gets through in that first chapter like the how battered his body is how He's, you know, pulling himself up off the floor in the morning to get to just be able to walk. His back is so cropped. He's talking about his team and how they put him together before every game, his wife and his kids, and touches on his father. And um, and it, that game, he talks then through through that that game that he plays against the Greek uh, player. I can't remember his name. Um, but it, it also it throws you back to that time of tennis 
when it was transitioning from being a fairly uptight, uh, you know, classically Wimbledon all white kind of uh, game to to the modern game. And I don't know, it really highlights some brilliant parts of tennis, like where he came on board, Sampras, Becker, and there was just a lot more. Um, I don't know, just a way cooler sport, and how much he brought to the, to the sport, how much light he brought to it, how much colour he brought to it. So, um, yeah, for anyone that hasn't read it, and he, you know, he even gets into taking crystal meth while he's fucking. Yeah, that was a surprise, wasn't it? Throws that in halfway through. Yeah, he took crystal meth and denied it. I mean, what more do you want when you're talking honesty for a book? Um, so, uh, yeah. That's 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 brilliant. Thanks for that, man. Um, imagine imagine Warburton uh, unveiled that he was taking Crystal Meth. <laughs> yeah, imagine. What? I did imagine. not see that coming. <laughs> like I was surprised he had kind of you know that line with Hooper. Like that shocked me. Let alone if he said you know mm. something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. So look, I think as he said himself when he wrote this book, is that it's going to help, or if it will help one person um, who is dealing with something similar, then. So be it, and it, I'm sure it has. Right, well, that's uh, that's great, Jeff. Thanks a million, man. Keep those recommendations coming. Um, and you should read Normal People in the meantime. It's great. I was actually given a gift of it there the last day from uh, someone I worked with. They sent me the book in the post. and I think I just finished the last episode, so I was like, oh, just, just in time. <laughs> like, yeah, it might be the next book review we do. Who knows? You know, stay yeah. away from sport altogether. Yeah. Um, all right, well, we're going to st- stay on the line there because Trimby's going to finish it out with our Penguin of the Week and any Penguin news. Trimby, how are we doing on that front? Yeah, Penguins are flying. Uh, very active um, this time of year. <laughs> so, um, uh, Matt McKnight is, um, is is doing what he does best in the group. Um, did a little bit of an illustration, Dan Carter, sitting on his phone um, watching Penguins. Someone uh, drew your attention to uh, an extra in Braveheart, Barry. That you knew, you knew this. You had a connection with this. Yeah, funnily enough, on when whatever Thursday of the sh- after the show last week, um, someone got on to us saying that for the scene where William Wallace is being uh, hung, drawn, and quartered, he he was an extra, and when Mel Gibson, when he when he was being brought out, no one was allowed to throw any fruit. Uh, when his stunt double was brought, been brought out you've got to lash this guy with as much fruit as possible. <laughs> so one of our penguins was there and they're all throwing fruit or whatever. And then when Mel Gibson comes out, it's like no one throw fruit at him, but someone lashed a head of lettuce off his face or something. And the whole place went mental. Uh, and funnily enough, my mate had rang me that morning from Australia and he was like, uh, what did you talk about on the show? And I said, Braveheart. And he said, oh, you remember my brother Rory was in the FCA and they went to, to be extras in it. And then, when Mel Gibson has been brought out, Rory lashed a cabbage off his face. So I reckon everyone has a Braveheart story at this point because uh, the whole war were coming through. And, if and didn't someone else say that his he went on his first date with his current girlfriend and when he went to her birthday party, her uncle was the, the, the fucking, the, what would you call him? The lad that oversees his, William Wallace's beheading. Hey, executioner, yeah. Um, yeah. That's brilliant. Imagine walking yeah. into a party and that lad's there. Dressed <laughs> dress and chain mail. Yeah. Like, the prisoner wishes to say a word. And then 
I do. I would just not be able to stop shouting freedom at him all the time. <laughs> yeah. Like three points and I'm just, I'm afraid <laughs> Yeah. I'd say he gets that a lot. I bet you he's like uh, your man from one foot in the grave. I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so Penguins have been on fire this week. Um, one Penguin who wasn't quite on fire um, for me was um, uh, Pat Curran. Someone put a, a link up to, again, we've referenced it a number of times, at uh, the time, Fla volleyed Alexis Pallison. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that his name? Pat Pallison, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, uh, there's a couple of comments under it, all kind of lighthearted and banter, and under, understand the tone that we're hitting. Pat Curran uh, puts a comment and says, "Highly dangerous and no attempt to tackle." <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> we've introduced a new award, and the winner of the inaugural uh, world's most obvious comment award goes. Just call him Pat all of the week. Yes, uh, Pat. Pat gets that, or yeah, Pat Curran gets that. Um, and that brings me on penguin of the week this week uh, I was in the market uh, Amazon marketplace sorry Facebook marketplace for uh, a rower gym equipment's very difficult to get these days so mm-hmm. I found one on uh, on Facebook and this is how far and wide the reach of the penguins has gone uh, I got into negotiation um, mode Jeff I don't know if you've read um, his name Voss he was an FBI negotiator um, he was on Joe Rogan have you read this one no yeah, so anyway, he talks about how he was a hostage negotiator and he now is applying this to business. So I got fired. I, you know, I thought, like, here's my chance to negotiate. And this guy just disarmed me straight away. He said, um, I'll give you a deal if you make me Penguin of the Week. <laughs> <laughs> so James Wilson, thanks a lot for the cheap rower and uh, oh. and the even cheaper award now that people know how easy it is to get. <laughs> uh, Penguin of the Week, James Wilson. Yeah, keep trying to sell your stuff, lads. We'll, we'll, we'll take it all. Especially gym equipment. So hard to find. Jeez, yeah. who knows where you can get plates for weights. Plates for weights. Uh, please let us know because they are next impossible to find. Yeah, I think James actually has some plates, but they're in Belfast. You'd have to travel. Okay. I'll tell him get in touch. I can do. All right. Um, that's been brilliant. What a show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, James Hook, firstly, and then Jeff Neville, uh, secondly. Thanks a million for your reviews. Uh, you're a legend of a man. And best of luck with your 300,000 steps this weekend. Yes, thanks a million, boys. Good luck, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, thanks, everyone, for putting the show together this week. To Pat, to Paul, to Dermot, and to Anthony uh, for helping out and putting this, uh, again, all this magical stuff together that me and Shumbi have no idea about. This has been Baz and Andrew's House of Rugby here on Joe, together with Guinness Party on. Are you on? Are you on, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> I get stick now for that, 100%. <laughs> you were listening to Baz and Andrew's House of Rugby on Joe, together with Guinness. Drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie for the facts.